Hey guys, so I haven't recorded a um, recording in a while, but I wanted to do one that I haven't done before, and that's talk about a case study, particularly about adults. Um, we occasionally get referrals for adults, not very often, but because we don't cut off at any age, they do sometimes happen. Usually they are adults um, who have a recent autism diagnosis or have suspected sensory issues or maybe have anxiety where their therapist kind of thinks that there might be some sensory component to it and they're sent to us for evaluation. Um, not sure how many of you have actually had the opportunity to work with an adult because it does happen so infrequently. So I wanted to share an interesting case study that I have currently with an adult um, and kind of re I've been reflecting on some of my past experiences as well too to maybe inspire you for your work with kids and maybe to inspire you to be interested in also working with some of the adults that we do get in. Um, if you do have an interest, I usually, um, you know, will schedule adults with people who are interested in it because I, I do feel like it's kind of like an area of specialty a little bit. Um, so anyways, I'm working right now with this patient. She's 25 um, and she came in with a history of suspected sensory issues or kind of known sensory issues and a long history of trauma in and out of foster care, definitely had been labeled the bad kid. And upon talking to her at intake, um, I could tell there was probably also some language processing difficulties. Like she wasn't quite always clear and coherent in her ideas. Um, and there was, I think, a lot of she just had a lot of a lot of history to unpack, so that probably was part of it. When I met her, though, um, I got even more information that she didn't talk or walk until she was around five or so. So there was a history of motor issues. Um, she had a history of obviously seeing OT and PT and speech and all of that. But she also, in the entire evaluation, the, the hour, hour and a half I was with her, did not make eye contact with me at least not even once. Um, so I highly suspect that she's autistic. So I asked her if she has ever like, thought that may, she may be autistic. And she told me then that she does have a family history of it in her biological family, but that she's never been diagnosed. Um, I think she's most likely autistic. And as we've kind of unfolded, so our evaluation was just a lot of getting history. Um, I did look at her vision because um, there were some red flags there. She has really, really poor tracking. Um, we also talked about food because she's a picky eater and she's interested in maybe addressing that if possible. And we talked a lot about her sensory and kind of pointing out how she was using her sensory supports, even in our evaluation. When I came out into the lobby, she was actually standing in the corner, um, of the lobby, like up backed up against the wall. She had one earbud in, so she was already kind of blocking out some auditory and throughout the evaluation, anytime we were talking, she needed to be standing up, leaning up against the wall and kind of rocking back and forth and squeezing her hands. And then as she's talked about more stuff, she talked about how she makes sounds with her mouth that she has learned basically to mask. Um, and she goes into the bathroom at work sometimes to let it out because she can't hold it in. <laughs> um, she has some supports already, like she's using a hammock in her closet and she uses the weighted blanket, which are pretty effective for her. But she's all these major, major triggers that she's not always realizing, um, you know, that she doesn't have to force herself through it. So one example, and then also I think we, what we haven't tackled yet, which we need to get to still, is educating the, um, her foster parents on these issues. And I think I need to also help her find a new therapist as well, too. Um, 
So a couple of examples that came up that I think really highlight the importance of this kind of neurodivergent affirming practice that we're using with our kids. Because I think if she had been treated differently throughout her earlier childhood, she would be in a different place right now. So one example was she's very, very tactily sensitive. So her foster dad or her uncle um, wanted her to wash the dishes. And she had already told me how that's a really hard task for her, especially if there isn't a wand. She will not touch the dishes. She can't do it. Um, so there was no wand and they kept pushing her to wash the dishes, wash the dishes. You have to wash the dishes. You have to wash the dishes. Well, she had a full fight or flight response and she started crying and she ran out of the house into the pouring rain. She couldn't speak any longer. So one of her cousins came out and finally convinced her to come back in the house. And then she said she went upstairs, suddenly kind of an attic space where it was quiet. And she said it took her hours to come down from that. Um, so I, you know, we kind of talked about the fight or flight response and sensory sensitivity and like we talked about potential other modifications, like when you do have to wash the dishes, but also maybe advocating for yourself that like, Hey, I really need a wand to wash these dishes. Not that I don't want to wash the dishes. I physically cannot wash the dishes without a wand. Um, so we're, we've been talking in other situations about maybe she could try rubber gloves and see if something like that might help reduce the sensory demand on her. Um, another example that happened, she was really excited one day to report to me that she went to a restaurant with her friends and felt like she did pretty well with it. She said the only thing that really kind of went wrong for her was that she couldn't speak to the waiter. She has a lot of anxiety when new people come up to her and talk to her. And she has said that it's because she doesn't know what to say. So we actually talked about maybe using scripts in these situations as a strategy to know what to say. Um, because she talked about how sometimes she kind of wants to script, but it feels like she can't. And part of the anxiety she gets with interacting with other people is that she never knows what they're going to say or what they mean. She can't process their language fast enough. And then she can't plan what she's going to say. So she shuts down, doesn't talk. So she said, you know, my friends just ordered for me because I couldn't speak to the waiter. Like I just froze. But then she just said they also kind of teased me about it and laughed at me for it. And she said, I didn't think it was funny and I was embarrassed. So we talked about ways that she could advocate for herself in those situations with her friends. But then she also said after that, so this was already a challenging situation for her because going to a restaurant is hard. That whole social interaction was hard. Eating food in a restaurant is hard. Being in a loud restaurant is hard. She used a lot of spoons here. She decided then to go to the store afterwards because she was kind of sick and she needed some Vicks Vapor Rub or something. So she went to the store afterwards and she had basically a kind of like a panic meltdown in there had to call her foster mom and her foster mom told her like get out of there and go home so we had to talk about how these are both really triggering activities for her because we she already knows grocery stores are hard for her she goes at five in the morning she wears sunglasses and she wears her headphones to go to the store uh, and still struggles so we talked about how maybe going that day and right after a restaurant was probably not the best choice she might have needed to go back home first and do some sensory calming strategies. Um, another example that she talked about was how she gets really dysregulated. And she, one, she can't access language, but also she can't access any of her ideas to um, calm herself. So she's like, I have the weighted blanket and I have the hammock, but like I don't use them when I'm really upset. And I start headbanging. She bangs her head to the point that it bleeds and she bites herself. So she's still using these kind of like, um, self-injurious strategies for herself to calm herself down. Um, 
which are also dangerous because she does do it to quite an extreme. So we talked about creating a visual for her so that she doesn't have to remember what to do in those moments and we, we, you know, where we could put it in her apartment so that she sees it and remembers. So I'm making her a visual that she can hang up. She decided to hang in her closet. So we're going to see if that helps her come up with the idea to access her strategies. Um, we also are putting up, I'm also going to give her a laminated picture of an oven mitt because the other thing she struggles with, she does have um, diagnosed ADHD, is she forgets to use things like oven mitts when she's cooking and she's burned herself multiple times. Um, part of it is she doesn't like to use the utensils, like spatulas and things like that, because she what she has told me is they just don't work. I have yet to see her use them, and that's on my agenda with her the next time I see her, um, to see what the coordination is there, because I suspect there's a lot of motor planning coordination issues happening as well. Um, but she doesn't use them, so she ends up flipping things over with her hands and burning herself, or she forgets her oven mitt because it kind of sounds like it's an impulsivity thing as we talk through it, and she burns herself. So we talked about putting up a picture by the oven, like maybe on the hood vent or somewhere near there where she has a visual reminder to get her oven mitt beforehand for safety reasons. Um, And then the most recent example that she gave me that really kind of prompted me to record this because I feel like this was a really unfortunate example, I suppose, of how sensory, how just being neurodivergent can cause trauma. Um, you know, we talk a lot about trauma-informed care and about this neurodiversity movement, but like, I don't know that we always connect these ideas together. So she, knowing all these things about her, right, she shuts down when she gets dysregulated. She can't access her language. She does not like to be touched. Um, and she's a hard time processing language. It stresses her out. New people stress her out. She was riding a bus, I think she said, uh, and she fell asleep. Um, and this part of the story is not hundred percent clear to me, but, um, she fell asleep on the bus and the bus driver couldn't wake her up. So naturally they were concerned because, um, you know, she wasn't waking up and then she, they got her to wake up finally. And when she woke up, she was, I think she, this was after some other situation that had happened. Um, I'm trying to remember. She was also hospitalized for a nut allergy issue and there was a lot of issues happening there too. So they couldn't wake her up on the bus and she was unresponsive. She woke up, she was awake, but she wouldn't answer them. She said, I could not answer them. I could not speak. Um, and they just kept asking more questions, asking more questions and drilling her and touching her. And they called EMS who was touching her and prodding and poking. And she escalated and she started crying and screaming and still couldn't speak. So that was this like huge <laughs> trauma for her. And then, um, and the timeline on this story, honestly, is not super clear to me, but it sounds like around the same time, she also ended up in the hospital for a nut allergy. I'm not sure if it was before or after this. And, um, she's already very dysregulated because she's having this tactile body sensory response to a nut allergy, which is scary and overwhelming and a huge sensory experience. Now she's in a hospital with strangers who want to poke and prod her. Um, they want to take her blood pressure. That's making her kind of set off. She can't speak to them. They tried to give her medicine to calm her down, but she spit it out because she's very oral sensitive and tactile sensitive. She can't handle a lot of things in her mouth. So when her foster mom left the room, they ended up trying to give her a shot to, I'm assuming, sedate her. 
That set her off and she started screaming and crying and yelling. So if you're thinking about this on the other side, like that medical side, those nurses and the people in the hospital probably think like, this woman is really escalated. She's a danger to herself and to others. We need to immediately address this. Let's, you know, knock her out. I'm not saying one way is necessarily, I guess, right or wrong, but I think there's a lot of other options they probably could have tried. Um, But she was overwhelmed with the whole sensory experience of having IVs put in her and the blood pressure cuff and all the questioning and her um, not being able to answer those questions or advocate for herself because she was too dysregulated in this state of total panic. So you're thinking about how these very normal situations, this person's going through them, she doesn't have the tools. Nobody understands that she's autistic because she has not been diagnosed yet. So she's not getting the supports that she needs. Um, I don't think they fully understand the extent of her sensory issues. They're quite extensive. So she's not getting any accommodations or any supports. And she's kind of left to do it on her own. Meanwhile, the world is telling her something's wrong with you. You need to stop doing this. And so even though she's not in a very behavioral setting, she is being told something's wrong with her and she needs to stop what she's doing and fix it. She's also unfortunately working with a therapist who through our discussion, I do not believe to be neurodivergent affirming um, and frequently sends her the message that a lot of this is in her head and that she needs to overcome it. So I'm trying to get her to see somebody else. Um, But I just thought this was a really interesting case. I feel like there is so much I can do with this girl. I was not expecting to pick her up because usually I do an evaluation, I do some education, give them some strategies and like, but this is the most, um, the, I guess this is the, an adult I've worked with that has, is the most impacted by her entire neurodivergence situation that there's so many things I can work on. I'm, I'm actually seeing her every week right now. We're kind of scheduling week to week. So it's a really interesting case. Um, if you're curious about more, I can always keep you updated on how it unfolds. I've only seen her a couple of times. So this is very early stages. Um, but if you are interested in seeing any adults, like I mentioned, we do get this request, these referrals every now and again. And it's nice to know if people are interested. I think it's really, really enlightening. It helps me understand my pediatric patients a lot better because my adults can tell me a lot more And I can also explain to them on a cognitive level why things are happening in this particular way. Um, So it's been really interesting. So if you have any questions about it or you want to talk more about it, let me know.